is it possible that we live in a simulation? Is it possible that this is all just a big computer program that's running on overdrive and that somehow it's controlling us in the actions that we take and somehow it's, it's organizing the world around us? And it seems like such a question is silly on the face of it. It seems like such a question is kind of unworthy of our attention. Um, and something that is, is pretty much only based in science fiction. Um, but it seems as though it's not. It seems as though that kind of question is starting to gain more and more traction, not only in the world of philosophers, but also in the world of physicists. So way back, and I can now say way back in 2016, which seems weird to say, but way back in 2016, uh, at the American Museum of Natural History, which is not a small museum and not a unimportant place for history or for science, they gathered five noted physicists to simply speak on the idea that our whole reality might be nothing but a simulation of some sort, whether we could call it a computer simulation or not. And the vast majority of the scientists that they were able to gather, who were world-known scientists, all agreed this is likely or possibly some sort of simulation that we're living in. They only invited one philosopher, which is a real problem when you have a group of scientists together like that. But even the philosopher thought that this was not only a possibility, but probably true. We have not just scientists who have their heads in the clouds who argue this, but even real-world engineers like Elon Musk, who in an interview once said that we are most likely, his words, most likely in a simulation of some sort. This is, the, by the way, the same Elon Musk, I believe, who shot a car into space. So, you know, you gotta got to take, take his word for what you want it to be. But nevertheless, this is a very strange world that we live in, where the people who tell us that what you can see and taste and touch and smell are the only things in reality are now saying that reality might not be the real reality. It might be some sort of fake reality, and there's another reality that's a little bit further out there, and this is all sort of simulated for us. None of this is actually new. They didn't come up with this. This has been around for a long time, whether it's Plato's images from the cave or whether it's Descartes' meditation or whether it's the 1999 movie The Matrix. These ideas have been around for a very, very long time. It's a well-played motif, and it's not just for science fiction, and it's not just for philosophy. And while this all seems fairly abstract on a whole, it seems like this kind of question would be really important. What is reality? How do we know what reality is? Is it only what we can sense with our bodies, or is reality more than that? It seems like those scientists who would say that it's more than this. They have to look out at the world and say there's got to be something beyond this world that must be running this world if they agree that this is a possibility. And the rest of us would then clap and say, welcome to religion. Atheists. <laughs> Science has finally caught up. It took them 2,000 years. They caught up to the, the religion that every man has known since before the foundation of history, that there is more to this world than what we can see and touch and smell and taste. But even religious people fall short of understanding the real reality behind what we can see before us. The Jewish people that Jesus is going to be interacting with seem to be struggling with this as well. It's not that they don't believe that there's a reality beyond this. They certainly believe that there is a God out there. And they believe that this God can reach through the reality to reach them. But nevertheless, they don't understand the fullness of that reality. They might believe in an uncreated, sovereign maker of the universe, a one-of-a-kind God that they can call their father, but they don't understand the implications of what they're saying fully. Part of the reason is the Old Testament sort of lends itself to this. As you read through the Old Testament, you get 
shadows of what is actually happening. You get glimpses every once in a while behind the curtain as to what the real reality is. We have God making everything in Genesis 1. We have God providing miracles to bring his people out in the book of Exodus. We have in Job 1, Job's accuser going before the Lord and talking to him, Satan himself. We have Daniel's angels in Daniel 7 through 12. We have Elisha's army in 2 Kings 6. But the people even though they're Jewish, and even though they get these glimpses of a reality behind a reality, don't seem to fully understand an existence much beyond their physical presence. After all, even back in John 8.15, Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh. You only understand according to what is before you. The great news of the New Testament, the great news of the gospel, is nothing less than the fact that there is a reality beyond this reality. And the God who dwells in that reality that is beyond our reality has not left himself there, but he has come, not just to pull back the curtain, not just to blow the smoke away, to show himself, but he has actually enclosed himself in our reality. He has become part of our reality. He has immersed himself in it so that those two realities might become one. There is no more that reality and this reality. There is only one reality. Jesus, the very word of God, the one who was with God and was God himself at the very beginning, rends the division between the two. And through his cross and his resurrection, has assured, has assured that those two will never be parted ever again. This is the new reality that invades our world. Yet, how we are to explain such difficult concepts to ourselves or to people who are very entrenched in only seeing what is before them can be very difficult. But our text, I hope, will help us today, at least in a couple of facets. Let us then look at John 8, 31 through 47, and try to see the reality behind the reality. The word of God says this, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of our God. Let us hear it and believe it. First, I would like to point you to the reality of freedom. The reality of freedom. Jesus addresses those who in verse 30, John has recorded as saying they believed in him. John has said this before. We are always kind of to take that with a grain of salt. Do they truly believe or are they they not true disciples, not people who truly will believe forever? And Jesus is going to give them a little bit of a hint. He says, now, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You have said that you believe, you have appearance of belief, he says, but you need to abide in my word. You need to remain in my word. Well, so often for many Christians, the main focus of their faith is not the remaining bit, but it is the beginning bit. They cling onto this event that has happened to them. And many of you have profound events that have happened to you where the Lord has spoken to you and you've been convicted on the spot. I've, I've spoken to many people who have had, maybe you might, I want to call them miraculous, but pretty miraculous things happen to them and feelings come over them and understanding come over them that they never had before the moment that they heard the gospel. Many of you have not had those things. But regardless of whether you have or whether you haven't, the focus on that moment can be very, very deceptive. And so Jesus looks at these people and he says, the the issue is not whether or not something has happened to you. The question is never, friends, whether you have believed but whether you still believe. He says, remain in my word. And there's a promise that comes with it. If you remain in his word, you are truly his disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This promise starts something of a chain reaction. The crowds then answer him. The Jews who had believed in him answer him. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, immediately, you might stop and think there are at least a couple of problems with that. First of all, apparently you've plumb forgot all about that Egypt thing. Like, you were enslaved down there for like 400 years. This isn't a small amount of time. You were enslaved down there for quite a while. And that was after Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, slavery. So you were enslaved. And they say maybe they're talking about themselves. And at that point in time, Jesus would like to look around and say, you've heard of Rome, right? Like, you aren't free to do anything. You're going to try and kill me, but in order to kill me, you're going to have to go get dad's permission in Rome. So you aren't free. But the interesting bit is that Jesus doesn't correct them on their historical inaccuracy. He, he doesn't care that they forgot about Egypt, and he doesn't care that they really forgot about Rome. The problem is what they think of reality. The issue is not that they don't see Egypt and they don't see Rome. The problem is that they don't see themselves enslaved that moment. He says, honestly, truly, truly, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Simply because you don't see the shackles that are around you, simply because you don't physically feel the whip on your back, doesn't mean that you're not enslaved. The lack of someone yelling at you to make bricks for them doesn't mean that Egypt doesn't still stand over you. And the fact that you have political pseudo-freedom doesn't mean that Rome doesn't stand over you. And friends, for us, simply the fact that we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave doesn't make you either. Jesus says you're entrapment 
is so severe and so secure and so ever-present in you that you don't even know that you are a slave to sin. But I tell you, everyone who sins, notice the gravity of this. Truly, truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And this is the very thing that Jesus was sent to undo. Again, we come back to Isaiah 42, 6 or 8, which I wouldn't mention, but I had mentioned it the past two sermons, and while we got a good thing going, we might as well keep it going. So Isaiah 42, 6 or 8, Jesus says, I am, he, he claims in, in the beginning of chapter 8 that he is the light of the world. Here he says that God has given him as a light for the nation to open eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. Let me ask you, friend, when does Jesus ever do that? When does Jesus ever take people out of prison? There was one person he did that to, Barabbas. That's it. He was exchanged for him. And that was the only person that he ever set free. As a matter of fact, this whole idea of setting captives free is the very way Jesus inaugurates and announces his ministry. As he goes in Luke chapter 4, sits down in the synagogue, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He finds, he unrolls it and finds a place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When does that happen? And truth be told, it never happens that way. He never sets people free from prison. I mean, you can stretch that and say, well, the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord shows up and lets Peter out, right? And he opens the doors for Paul every once in a while. But that's not what Jesus is talking about there. What kind of slavery does he end? It's clearly not a physical slavery, but it is the slavery to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This comes at the end of this, a very enigmatic parable, if you want to call it a parable. It's interesting that the synoptics have Jesus teaching almost exclusively in parables. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, parable, 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 parable. One of the reasons why the disciples don't understand, I think in the book of Mark at least, why it is when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to raise up from the grave in three days. And they look at him and they're like, I don't understand what you're saying. Because he's only speaking to them in parables all the time, and they're like, I don't get this parable. This is a weird one. So they, they think that he's talking in parables, but in the Gospel of John, he's not doing that ever. This, I think, sounds more like a parable. And if it is, it's the only parable there. But at least, at the very least, it's very, it's very odd If we don't understand the reality of our slavery, we're not going to understand the reality of our freedom. And here Jesus is going to tell us something about the nature of our freedom. This sort of enigmatic parable happens in verse 35 and 36. He says this, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now when we we think about slavery those two sentiments seem completely backwards to us, right? Because if the slave doesn't stay in the house forever, that seems to be giving him his freedom, right? Because if you are a slave to somebody, you are with that person's house. When you are let go from that house, that is your freedom, it seems like. But it seems like Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. The slave cannot remain in the house. He doesn't even give it like a possibility, Right? He doesn't say the slave sometimes kind of gets out 
or the slave sometimes stays, but he says the slave does not remain in the house forever, and that is somehow attached to slavery. Being released from the house is slavery. Staying in the house seems to be freedom because that's where the sun stays. And so he says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's very confusing, very backwards. But I think, as we would often do, we can have light shed on this by going back to the book of Exodus, in Exodus 21 specifically. Exodus 21 comes directly after the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And it's interesting because after the Ten Commandments, these are the things that God wants his people to know in the book of Exodus. And so we'll read the first six verses of Exodus 21. Now, God says to Moses, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So one of the first things that God does after giving the Ten Commandments is to look at his people and say, listen, when your brother from another mother goes into hard financial times and you are going to help him out, but you don't have the free cash to just be chucking money at him, what you're going to do is you're going to allow him to become your servant or your slave. And you are going to help him, and you're going to pay for him. And that arrangement is going to work for six years. Okay? You are going to keep this up for six years. And in the seventh year, he's gone. There, there is no, like, willy-nilly, you're not going to play around with this. You're not going to say, hey, maybe just we'll stretch this out into another year so I can pay you a little bit more. Or, or you kind of, you know, that third year you were pretty sick and you kind of slacked off a bit. We got to tack on a little bit more. God says, no, seventh year, he's gone. Okay? You will release him. Now, the important thing to note is also that what he comes in with is what he leaves with. If he comes in with a wife, he leaves with that wife and supposedly any children that they had along the way. If he comes in single, he's supposed to leave single. The issue then becomes if he comes in single and his master provides a wife for him. Now, the reason why that's an issue is because the master would have paid the dowry for the woman. Because remember, this guy doesn't have cash. That's why he's in slavery in the first place. So he says, that woman technically belongs to the master and all of her children would belong to the master. So what that man can say is, listen, I want to remain in the house forever. And so the man will take him to God, put his ear up to a doorpost, and stamp him. He will put through his ear and all, and he will be his slave forever. It is not surprising then the way Jesus speaks if this is what is in his mind when he talks about a slave and a son and when he talks about the fact that the son remains forever. A son can never be sent out in the way that a slave is sent out. He belongs to that house. That house is always his house. He can, be, he can leave for various reasons, but he is never sent out of the house. The son is always the son of his father. He is never going to go out. But clearly, the slave is supposed to be sent out. The slave will not remain. The slave will be sent out. The seventh year, he is to be released. The question then is, what does this have to do with what Jesus is saying? I believe that the, the parable in John 8 then is talking about the fact that 
The household is nothing less than God's family. God has called the Jewish people to be part of his family. But they are his family only as much as they are slaves. And Jesus is not a son, but he is the son. So when we read here, when he says, the son remains forever, that word is never applied to anyone in the Gospel of John, the word son, except Jesus Christ himself. He doesn't mean that sometimes a son will remain forever, but he means I will always remain forever in the household of God. There is no way for me to be kicked out. There's no way for me to leave. So the Israelites, although they are in some shape or form God's children, are nothing less than slaves. And by the way, there are plenty of passages that support that in the Old Testament where God talks about redeeming or ransoming his people from Egypt. Again, in another passage that accords with this in Leviticus 25, we read this. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. Now, I wanted to quote that, but unfortunately we need to talk about that issue of slave. What you're going to see is in, in Leviticus 25 versus Exodus 21. Exodus 21 saying, have him as a slave, it's okay. Leviticus 25 says you can't have him as a slave. It's really just a quibble about the word slave because what they describe is almost identical to one another. Okay, what Leviticus means by you can't have him as a slave is you can't have him as a slave like he was a slave in Egypt. You can have him as a servant to you because you will hear that it sounds exactly like what we just got done talking about in Exodus. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. Exactly the same setup. Why is it like that, God? Why is that supposed to be the mark of slavery within the Hebrew people? He goes on to say in Leviticus, For they are my servants, they are my slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. In other words, I purchased them. They're my slaves, and they're in my household. So what Jesus is saying is this, friend, if you don't remain, there will come a day when God will remove you from the house, and you will no longer be his unless you come up to him and say, I love my master and I want to remain with my master. Remember what Jesus just got done saying, remain in my word, abide in my word. Unless you come up to the son and the son take you to God and say, he is to be mine and he marks you as his, you will not remain. You will be let go out of the house, in this case, the household of God. The emphasis is clearly upon remaining in the household, both in the Exodus account and in the account in John. We know that we can be free from our sin. We can know the goodness of the Lord our God. And we can serve him forever and ever. What Jesus is saying is your freedom looks an awful lot like slavery. The reality is we think that we can have autonomous freedom. What Jesus is telling us is that your freedom is never going to be autonomous freedom. You don't get the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, whyever you want. You have a freedom from sin and being locked into God. We just got done talking about bind my wandering heart like a fetter to God. Be enslaved to him. Run up to the sun and say, I want to remain in you and let him pierce you through so that you will remain with him forever so that you can live with him forever. Your freedom is slavery, but it is slavery to the right things. Notice how well this accords with Romans 6, 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, 
you were free in regard to righteousness. You could, you could do righteous things. You could ignore righteous things. It didn't, it didn't matter. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love to quote that last verse. You realize what the free gift is there. The free gift is slavery. You get to be enslaved to him forever. That is the reality of your freedom. Your true freedom, how to truly be the freest person you can possibly be, is not to be untethered from God, but it is to be directly tethered to him. Paul calls this a gift You're only free when you are truly a slave of God. That is the reality of your freedom. Secondly, let us think through the reality of our fathers. The reality of fathers. In verses 37 through 42, Jesus goes on. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. There is some confusion over slavery. There is also, therefore, some confusion over this idea of fathers. Notice this incredibly large contrast of yet. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. I I get that. I'm not denying that. I know biologically, genealogically, you are related to Abraham. He says then in the second half of verse 37, yet. There is this this overriding problem. You seem to be related to Abraham, yet you're trying to kill me. True sons don't do this. True sons do what their fathers did. I speak of what I have seen with my father. I I am a true son of God because I do what the father gives me to do. What, What the father shows me, I do. What the Father tells me, I speak. I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. So this is the mark of a true son, the one who does what his Father asks him to do, the one who does what his Father does. They're, they're claiming to be sons of Abraham, but they can't be sons of Abraham because they're doing the things that Abraham just didn't do. But it's not hard to see why the Jews would be confused by this. He says, I know you're sons of Abraham, but you're not acting like sons of Abraham. You're acting like your father. And they, they're I don't understand what you're saying here. If you know Abraham is our father, but we're acting like our father, but we're not acting like Abraham, then who is our father? And so they clarify. They, they seek to clarify. They say simply, Abraham is our father. You can almost see like the little question mark above their heads. Abraham is our father. I don't, I don't know what you're getting at. And so he says very clearly, if Abraham truly was your father, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. Now he's spelling it out for him. Just as I always do what my father did, if Abraham was your father, you would be doing precisely what he did. But you are seeking to kill me. Abraham didn't do that. That wasn't what Abraham's path in life was. It was trusting the Lord. It was doing what the Lord led him to do. It wasn't killing the Son of God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. And so, the Jews fire back, somewhat angrily this time, it seems like. Jesus has made his point very clear. And they come back and they say, listen, we were not born of sexual immorality. Now, given that the gospel of Mark starts when Jesus launches his ministry, it doesn't much care about how Jesus comes into the world. Matthew and Luke care much more about how Jesus comes into the world, specifically through the virgin birth. And so they have much to say about that event. 
Gospel of John doesn't so much care how Jesus got to the world. He dismisses that with one small verse that he took on flesh, but he cares much more about who Jesus is. But nevertheless, John knows the other Gospels. It seems clear to me that John understands what they say, how they say it, and why they say it. So I think that people are not off here when they think that there is something of a shot across the bow to Jesus here from the Jews when they say, listen, our mom didn't give birth before she was married, okay? We weren't born of sexual immorality. And and they're getting testy, and they're kind of looking at Jesus and being like, kind of like you were, right? But even if that's not true, what they're saying makes sense. Because they're saying, listen, there wasn't any funny stuff going on with mom. Abraham was our father, and only Abraham was our father. You make it sound like there are two dads going on here, as though Abraham gave birth to Isaac, or, or begot Isaac, but then somebody else somehow got involved with Sarai and, and we got all messed up in here and they say, no, no, Abraham is our father. And they even go further than that. There seems to be something maybe funny going on with mom or something fishy going on with Abraham. They go further than that. They say, not only is Abraham our father, but God is our father. And so Jesus comes back and he says, listen, if God were your father, we'd have no issue because you would love me because I am from God and we'd all be one big happy family. Because he sent me, you would accept me because we're all part of the same family. But you don't accept me. You seek to kill me. We can really be confused about the nature of God as a father. There is a sense in which we are all God's children. The sense is simply the fact that he has created all of us. The, the act of begetting is sort of close to the act of creating in the biblical language. And so God is a father to us because he's made all of us. You are all the handiwork of God, and so therefore he stands as a father over you. But this is a different kind of father. This type of fatherhood places responsibilities on us and on God, but doesn't give us any, any close to the type of relationship that the Bible typically means when it says God is your father. Father, and specifically when Jesus and the New Testament and John speak of God as your Father. To claim that God is your Father means that you are born of Him, that you know Him, that you do, as Jesus said, the very things that He calls on you to do. And what does He call on you to do? In John 6, they said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. We can only truly be members of his house and be his children through belief and trust in Christ. This is why John 1, 12 through 13 says this, All who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you are children because God has given you the authority to be his children because you have received Jesus Christ. There's two ways, I think, that you can understand that verse. And both of them are important and both of them point to the reality that is directly in front of us. First, God, through his own choice and election of you, because he acts first upon you, allows you to become his children because he has willed for you to become his children. Okay? You are his children because he has willed that. But... He has also given you the ability. He has also given you the right. He's also given you the authority to show that you are his children by doing his will. Not by doing man's will, 
not by doing what the flesh demands, but by doing the very will of God. Both of those things are true, and both of them must be believed. This is the reality of having God as our Father. It is about having a relationship with God, not simply an act of God where he has then dismissed us forever. This is the way so many people in this world have fathers. They have fathers not in terms of a relationship with them, but fathers simply as someone who has given genetic material and then left. That is not who God is. And that is not the way that you have a relationship with Christ as the pathway to be known by the Father. To have God truly as your Father, there must be a relationship with him, a doing of his will and acting like him. The reality of our Father in heaven must be deeper than just knowing him as our creator. This means that we can actually do his will. This means that we are slaves in his house. This means we are children of God. The only way we can know God as Father and to do his will is by believing that Jesus is the Christ. It's by trusting in him. Just as the passage in Exodus said, we go to the Son and we say, we want to remain forever here. And he takes us and he seals us forever because we owed a debt to God. We were unrighteous in our rebellion before God. We are nothing but if children, prodigal children, who do not return home. And yet it is Christ who has laid down his life, the one true son who never disobeyed his father, never rebelled against him, never committed treason against the kingdom. Instead, took the brunt of the wrath that we deserved, all of our punishment that was due to us. He took it so that you might be called the children of God, to give you the right to be the children of God. Don't be fooled by the world. The world wants to tell every single person that God is your father, that he only means right by you. Listen, that is a lie. God is your father, not in the sense that he will provide good things for you, but through creation, God is your father is only enough of a claim to make you damnable. That's it. Believing that that is all you need to be a creature made by God in order for God to treat you well is a lie. And it's a dangerous lie. And it's a deadly lie. There is a reality that the father that we need is more than the fathers that we have. It is more than a father who is simply created, but it is a father who has given us a son. That true reality is found through Jesus Christ in God, our father. But while we sometimes believe that lie, and it is indeed a deadly lie, we need to point to number three, which is the reality of frauds. There are frauds, and Satan is the greatest of them. Those who don't know God as Father do have a true Father, and they do the works of that true Father. It is nothing less than the devil. People don't readily believe in Satan. Again, back in 2016, a Gallup poll of just general Americans said that 79% of Americans believe in God, but only 61% believed in the devil or some sort of supernatural evil being. I find such a response interesting. I, I, I really think that it's, it's insightful by people to look out in the world and to see all of the horrible things that happen in the world and think, yeah, there's just one benevolent good creator out there. It's, it's interesting to me that, that they kind of can come to this conclusion. Why, looking at the world, would we not want to think that there's something evil that stands beside 
that which is good, not above that which is good, not even equal to that which is good, not even close to being equal to that which is good, but nevertheless working for evil in the world. Is it that they've had really good online interactions with people and they think that the world is just kind of a good place? Is it the non-stop profiteering off of sex trafficking and, and just thuggery in the third world and even in our world? Is it the constant war and hatred? Do these things not point at an evil that is far above and beyond that's pushing evil in our world? And they might say, well, sure, it, that, that exists, but it's just, it's just a force. And so when the scripture speaks of Satan or it speaks of the devil, it's simply speaking metaphorically for like evil things in the world. It's not an actual person. But friends, reading through John 8 here, it's almost impossible to think that Jesus believes anything like that. Not only is Jesus contrasting Satan with God the Father, who is God the Father, not God the power, not God the force, but God the one who interacts with you like a person. He is talking about him. Not only is he talking about him like he is your father, but he's talking about him as though he does things like a person does. Forces can't lie. Forces only act. But this force lied. This evil being lies. He continually lies. He only lies, as a matter of fact. He has lied and murdered from the beginning. There's no way that you can read what Jesus is saying here and think that Jesus doesn't believe that the devil is real and true and prowling like a lion looking for people to devour. No, he says, this is the one who you are doing the will of. You are acting like your father, the devil says he speaks and he acts in character when he lies because he's lied from the beginning. In the beginning, he saw Eve looking at that tree and said, hey, you know what, that tree, that tree, you ever, you ever think about taking that? No, we'll surely die. No, he says, you won't surely die. It's a lie. It is a lie that led to murder, not just the murder of Cain and Abel, the murder of Adam and Eve, the minute they took, they listened to him and they took, that was poison for them. They died. From the very beginning, he was nothing but a liar and a murderer. And notice what Jesus says. It's not, it's not like he just lies every once in a while. He says, whenever he speaks, he speaks out of his own character and all he can speak is lies, not because he sometimes lies, but because he is nothing but a liar. He must be, as he sets himself up against the God who is nothing but the truth. If you oppose God who is nothing but the truth, you can be nothing but a liar. And the Jews show here that they are doing his will by placing themselves against Jesus. Jesus looks at them and he says, I, if I'm a sinner, tell me what I've done. If, if I'm in the wrong, then convict me of it. But if I'm not in the wrong and I'm speaking truth to you, why are you seeking to kill me? You seek to kill me because you're doing the works of your father, because you believe in the lie, because you've entrusted yourself to the lie. Why are they so angry against Jesus? Why are they so filled with angst against him? And it's all because they're doing the very same things that their father has done from the beginning. Who raged against God and against the kingdom since that fateful day in the garden? Who was it that actually enslaved the people in Egypt? Who was it that sought to curse them on their way through the promised land? Who was it 
that let the other people in the promised land fight and rage against the people of Israel? Who was it that paraded other false gods in front of them? Who was it that allowed them to pollute the land with blood? Who was it that made them commit adultery time and time and time again before their God? Yes, it was the nations around them, but Satan stood behind all of it. Was not that unseen force the real enemy the entire time? Was not Satan the true and abiding enemy? They think that their enemies are the people they see. They think that their enemy is Rome. They think that their enemy is the things around them. They think that their enemies are the people, the centurions, the guardians, the tax collectors, even those who are sinful, the prostitutes, because if their nation was more righteous, then we wouldn't have to worry about all this Rome stuff. God would just come and be good to us if it weren't for the tax collectors and the prostitutes. No, Satan is the one who stands behind all of it. Those who would stand against Christ are not the foremost enemy. They might be blind and they might be enslaved, but their blindness and their enslavement means we ought to pity them. They are not our real enemies. As Paul famously says in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, politicians are not your enemies. Whether they're libs or neocons, they're not your enemies. Muslims are not your real enemies. Your neighbors are not your real enemies. Those who oppose you, those who revile you, those who persecute you, those who look at you angrily over their lunch, they are not your enemies. Don't be blinded to this reality. If you see them only as enemies, friends, you're never going to love them. You ought to pity them because they are enslaved to the real enemy who is none less than Satan and only Christ can set them free. Your anger toward them is not going to set them free. Your frustration with them is not going to set them free. It is only the gospel that will ever set them free that will remove the blindness from their eyes and the hardness from their hearts. So put on the whole armor of God, as Paul would say. Put on the helmet, put on the breastplate, put on the feet. Run with the gospel to them. At the end of that passage in verse 18 of chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, you can understand him as saying all the saints there, as looking around in Ephesus and saying every single person in Ephesus who is a believer at that moment but when Paul says all the saints in the book of Ephesians, no less, it is very likely that he means all of the people who are going to be saved by election in Christ before the foundation of the world, which is exactly how he starts the book. So all the saints would be not just those who are saved, but those enemies who stand against you who will be saved by the preaching of the gospel. Pray for them. Love them. Don't be confused by the reality you see around you. That is not the real thing. It is a fake and it's a fraud. Your real enemy, your real enemy stands beyond them. It has famously been said that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making the world believe he didn't exist. And it was made famous in English by the movie The Usual Suspects, but it was written a long time before that, back in 1864 by a man named Charles Boulderdere. I'm probably butchering his name. He's a Frenchman, so it doesn't matter. He's just... <laughs> it's ironic, I think, 
so many scientists seem to want to believe or hold out a chance of belief in the fact that this is simply a computer simulation, that this is one of, of many worlds, that someone out there is sort of controlling these things. And they rage against the idea of God. They don't rage against the idea of these beings. Having a computer simulation with all of the hurt and the pain and the disease, all of the, the anger and the hatred and the war here, I don't hear them blathering on about that, but what they talk about is how cool such a simulation would be. Descartes wondered, but never actually answered, when he doubted everything in, in the middle of his meditations, when he came up with the idea, I think, therefore I am, he said, well, God could be, God could be a liar, and everything you see could be a fake and a fraud. Listen, God isn't a liar. God does exist. And while you thinking and therefore you are is probably a bad way to address the world, God thinks and therefore you are. But so does Satan. And he blinds the slaves of the world. He blinds them to his presence. He blinds them to their sin. He blinds them to their slavery. And he certainly blinds them to the glory of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. But while the devil is great, he is more powerful than you, he is smarter than you, he has everything going for him above and beyond you, Christ is better. And so while these people might be blinded, they're only blinded so long as Christ allows them to be blinded. And while you were blind, you were only blind so long as Christ left you blinded. He has destroyed the power the great accuser. He has shown forth the light and the glory of God in who he is and what he does. He speaks truth to us all and he sets prisoners free so that they might not be enslaved to their sin any longer and enslaved to Satan any longer, doing the will of their father who is the devil, but doing the will of their father who is none less than God. As Luther said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word is no less than Jesus Christ himself. So let us cling to him. Let us not be deceived. Let us not misunderstand the reality that we are in and thinking that this is all there is, what we can taste, touch, smell, feel, all of that, that is not the fullness of the reality that we have. Our freedom isn't what we consider it. Our freedom is not a freedom to autonomously, autonomously do what we want to do, but our freedom is only that which allows us to do what God wants us to. It is a gift of God that we would be enchained to him. Let us know that our freedom is easily taken from us in our sin. We are easily deceived and defrauded by Satan. But the grace of Christ cuts through this. Believe in the gospel. Trust in Christ. Abide in his word and know the reality of his love. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that you are good to us in all ways. We are thankful that you have given us your word that we might be able to understand and know that which is around us. We entrust ourselves to it, Father. We are not good enough, we are not clever enough to discover what the world is like on our own. We are not 
good enough to be able to see through the lies of Satan on our own. Father, we are blind to them, and he would lead us just close enough to the truth to allow us to be condemned in our own pride. We pray, Father, that your spirit gives us hope in the gospel, that Jesus is shown clearly and truly to us, that we might rejoice in saving faith and the grace of our Lord purchased for us on the cross. We pray, Father, that you do this so that you might receive glory from your people who are yours forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.